Welcome to Pocket Dilemmas, our podcast where we discuss political and economic questions which are facing the world today. I'm Jonathan Charles and Kerry Law is also here, as always, helping us to solve our dilemma, which we'll be looking at today, and that is around reforms. Should governments go through painful but necessary changes or preserve their political popularity? Tough choice for them. Today we listen to lessons learned from our outgoing chief economist, Sergei Guriev. What are pocket dilemmas? Are algorithms biased? Will robots take away your job? Do you trust cryptocurrency? How do we bridge the pay gap? What is the future of poverty? This is dilemmas at ebrd.com. The total number of votes cast in favor of leave was 17 million. And we're going to be doing a job that hopefully You'll be so proud of your president. A sea of red flags. In Istanbul, Turkish people gathered. Amit a magyar kormány dolgozott ki, most memorandumként átadjuk a parlament. Crowds chanting Zelensky. What percentage of all the people in the world do you think are migrants? My name is Greta Thunberg. I am 15 years old and I'm from Sweden. I speak on behalf of climate justice. Well, that was an interesting montage, wasn't it? Sergey, you've been with us three years. Those are just some of the events that took place in that period. Brexit, Donald Trump, failed coup in Turkey, ongoing refugee crisis, the governments of Poland and Hungary continuing to turn their backs on liberalism, the rise of populist governments across parts of Western Europe, the US-China trade war, climate change, you name it. Those were certainly some challenging three years. They certainly were. And, you know, I'm really happy that you mentioned climate change. It seems like, especially in the last three years, it's really been on the world agenda and really recognized as a national emergency. As we all know, the earth is getting warmer and it means there's more extreme weather. It's it's incredibly devastating, not only to livelihoods, but also the vulnerable economies around the world, including in our countries of operation. So things like urbanization, which are caused by climate change and, of course, you know, various other factors, is also becoming a hot topic. Um, so cities, I don't know if you knew this, but cities actually consume over two-thirds of, two-thirds of the world's energy um, and account for more than 70% of the global CO2 emissions. So cities were actually seeing that's a battleground um, for climate change. And there are some interesting facts around this. So the European Parliament actually uh, passed a full ban on single-use plastic. We know that this single-use plastic is estimated to make up over 70% of marine litter. And this will come into effect in 2021. So there are some things that we're actually doing uh, to combat things like climate change. You know, so this is all this gloom that you refer to, but there are also some really positive things that have happened in the last few years. So You're such an optimist. I am the eternal optimist. (laughs) So um, extreme poverty, for example, it's fallen below 10%. We actually had Sergey on the podcast with Rachel from DFID, and she was really positive about where the, where the world is going. It's so easy to focus on the doom and gloom, but there's a lot that you know, we have to look forward to. So in 2018, for the first time in over 10,000 years, a majority of humankind is no longer poor or vulnerable to falling into poverty. I think that's a really impressive thing to really focus on as well. And then also just in the last few years, women leadership is on the rise. In 2018, more women around the world ascended to positions of power, uh, girl power, I guess. Um, In 2018, Tunisia became the first Arab nation to pass a law giving women and men equal rights to inheritance, which overturned an old provision in Sharia Islamic law 
So again, we have some progressive changes happening there. And then there was also a major milestone for human rights in the Middle East. A Lebanese course, a court issued a new judgment holding that homosexuality is not a crime. So it's not all doom and gloom. There is some sunshine out there, and you know we need to point that out as well. Okay, we'll banish the doomsters and the gloomsters, as uh, someone is fond of saying. Uh, not so gloomy after all, as you say, maybe. Uh, Sergei Guriev, welcome to the program. Give us your top headline take on the last three years as you've endured it, seen it, enjoyed it. Uh, good, bad, ugly, you tell us. Thank you very much, Jonathan, for having me on the podcast. Um, thank you very much, Katie, for being an optimist. I'm with you. And actually, one of the main takeaways is that the mandate of a BRD promoting reforms, promoting transition to sustainable market economy is actually alive and well. And part of this mandate is also a commitment to multi-party democracy and pluralism. What we've seen in our countries is that if you want reforms to be sustainable, they should be politically legitimate. For that, they need to be owned by the people. And for that, of course, you need political institutions, democratic checks and balances. You mentioned some turn back to populist leaders, some backlash against reform, some rise of uh, uh, leaders that uh, claim to be representing the people. But we've also seen in our countries, and not only in our countries, that some of those leaders are either incompetent or corrupt or both. And in some of the countries where those leaders came to power, they have actually failed to deliver. And uh, I can go through the numbers. And uh, one country where people say that there is uh, a populist government that actually delivered well is Poland. Everything else, every other uh, populist government has actually underperformed uh, the counterfactual or or comparable countries. In Poland, however, the success may be attributed to the reforms carried out by the previous governments, as well as an influx of highly qualified and uh, low-wage workers from neighboring Ukraine. Okay, we're going to explore all those uh, thoughts in the next few minutes. It's been a funny time in economics the last three or four years. It's been a funny time, really, since the financial crisis, hasn't it? But what do you think of the dynamics now that are really motivating economies, that are fueling economics? Well, in economics, I think, and this is since the crisis, since before the crisis as well, but also and especially since the crisis, is there is a lot of soul searching in economics where people start to look at uh, neighboring disciplines, trying to think what psychology can contribute to economics, what um, Uh, Political science can contribute to economics. What media studies can contribute to economics. Economists understand that it's not any longer about a rational homo economicus, and it's no longer um, a simple model from first-year economics textbook that can explain the world around us. And that's why economists are now becoming much more multidisciplinary. I would also say there is much more humility in the field of economics where economists want to learn from others, not just tell others what to do. Yet, that is a very exciting time to be an economist because you understand that the world around is so much complex and there are many things you can do as an economist. And uh, indeed, economics holding this uh, uh, access to very advanced uh, methodological approaches to analyzing data, which are now more and more available, to analyzing social interactions. Uh, Economists are contributing quite a lot to understanding what economy is, what society is. And one of my biggest takeaways from my job here at the BRD was that economics, modern economics, has a lot to contribute to our countries and to institution 
such as an MBRD. You've hinted there that economics really is a lot more complex than it than it used to be, uh, and you said on more than one occasion that reforms clearly are key for growth in uh, in economies. There's there's an issue here, isn't there? That because of the complexity, because of the fact as well that politicians are much more short term than they used to be. You know, they don't even probably think in four year electoral cycles anymore. They're perhaps thinking one year, two years. Um, how how under those circumstances do you keep reform going? Because after all. Uh, Politicians who are looking one year or two years down the road don't tend to be very interested in reform, which may deliver five, ten years down the road. There are several issues here, and indeed there are not necessarily economic issues, even though these are economic scholars who actually look at those issues. One issue is about communication strategy. We see that many of those populist anti-reform leaders that you mentioned use new media much more skillfully than their mainstream competitors. And and so for mainstream politicians and for reform politicians, we need to make sure that uh, they get on board with the new communications technology. But that, of course, is just a tool. What is not a tool, what is actually the essence of the matter is the matter of trust to reformers. And many, many of the mainstream elites actually have lost trust of the public. And to rebuild this trust, you need to reconnect with the audience. You need to reconnect with the voters. And uh, one example is, of course, the great debate that President Macron has launched in France. But more broadly, we need more of deliberative democracy. This is a new political technology where you bring in not party leaders, but normal people, normal voters, and get them to discuss and deliberate uh, important issues. That, that initiative, by the way, on, on President Macron, is an interesting one, isn't it? Because he has been going around, talking to individuals all the way around the country, having many town halls, in a way. Uh, and that's a very direct form of democracy. Do you think that that is the future for resolving some big issues? It's even been mentioned, for example, in terms of Brexit, that a better way forward might have been to have these town halls around the country and find out what people really think should be the way forward. This is part of the solution. And I think, indeed, the way we've progressed in recent decades is we made politicians more and more professional and technocratic. And that is a natural tendency given the complexity of the challenges and the need for very sophisticated reforms. But that comes at a cost where very professional politicians get detached from the voters and voters, of course, don't like that. And so this great debate where you hold town halls is important. But another issue is actually to make voters themselves, normal people themselves, to discuss and contribute to policy making. And since we are in, in a great Britain, in a neighboring country, in Ireland, that's been used, and it will be used in, in the UK as well, and it will be used in France as well, where you randomly pick normal people and ask them to spend time discussing diff difficult, polarizing issues. And then you bring their resolutions, their recommendations back to parliament. And of course, normal people on the ground would have additional trust in those solutions which are proposed not just by politicians somewhere else, but also by people like them. Interesting. So you mentioned, you know, a strong comm strategy, having trust with, with the, the electorate and then involving, you know, folks in, in things like town halls. But what are other reasons why reforms fail, reforms fail? I mean, is there anything having to do with, by chance, a uh, difference between rapid reforms versus gradual reforms in terms of outcomes of, of well-being? What are other some other things that, that may, maybe cause these reforms to fail? Well, uh, reforms have to be 
fair and inclusive. And that's why we, over the last uh, few years, have brought in the aspects of governance and inclusion into our transition concept, in our definition of sustainable market reforms. Now, whenever we do uh, our operations in our countries of operations, we look at those aspects, we evaluate to what extent we can actually improve governance, improve equal opportunity uh, to economic uh, prosperity, or we go backwards. And whenever voters see that reforms don't deliver to broad uh, parts of the society, and whenever they see that reforms are carried out in an unfair way, and non-meritocratic or corrupt way, they reject those reforms. And that is not directly related to fast versus slow reforms. You can have fast reforms which are inclusive and, and fair, and uh, yet, of course, we would support reforms which are carefully designed to make sure that uh, these reforms benefit society as a whole, not just narrow groups and not just connected or very rich or corrupt. And I think this is the key, fairness and inclusion, rather than speed or sequencing. These things are, of course, correlated, but overall, I would suggest that we would prefer slow and good reforms rather than fast and incorrect reforms. Because even if you are in a hurry, if you go too fast without paying attention to governance and inclusion, you may result in a situation with a backlash where reforms are reversed and eventually you get there faster if you move slower. Uh, but if you move fast and break things, as certain people would say, you may actually end up in square one with a negative attitude to reformers. And you've mentioned voters, you know, a few times and, and obviously hinted at, at voters' preferences. And voters just seem to be really volatile these days. And there was a, a recent comment from a world leader, um, where we won't really point to who it is, but who said that liberalism has outlived its purpose. Is he right? What are your thoughts? I kind of know which world leader you have in mind. And uh, this person's been in power for about 20 years. In those 20 years, he said pretty much everything, every combination of words you can find in a speech, in a textbook, in a campaign uh, platform. He's supported liberalism. He's rejected liberalism. And I will not be surprised that if next week of, uh, after our podcast comes out, he actually makes a statement that liberalism is alive and well, and uh, we should support markets, democracy, fight corruption, and so on. And in that sense, I think this is actually unfortunate that in some countries, voters cannot hold those leaders accountable. Some of those leaders have made a lot of work to make sure they're not accountable. They've captured media, they've captured courts, they've captured business. They made sure that political competition cannot uh, cannot actually challenge them. And this is what we as an institution should fight. This is why I have so much enjoyed my time here at the BRD, because I met many colleagues Actually, all of our colleagues strongly believe in our Article 1 of the agreement establishing the bank, where we are uniquely in the world of international financial institutions, believe in multi-party democracy and pluralism. Why? Exactly because we need to make sure that leaders who talk about things actually are responsible for delivering on their campaign promises. You're listening to Sergei Guriev, and uh, we are Pocket Dilemmas. And the dilemma we're looking at, should governments go through the painful but necessary changes that really are required to keep them at the top of their game, or should they preserve their political popularity? Maybe those two things, by the way, are not contradictory. Maybe you can preserve your political popularity and still have reforms. We'll see. Uh, Sergey, obviously the last three years you spent quite a lot of time looking at emerging economies, emerging markets. Has that made you more or less optimistic about the prospects for those markets? Because at one stage they were hailed as the great future. Uh, these days, r investors are a bit more reluctant, aren't they? 
Well, uh, in the last three years, we didn't have major crisis in emerging economies like in 1997 or 8. Uh, we also didn't have a major crisis in developed economies like in 2008 or 9. But we did have a couple of crisis in some emerging economies, mostly in Argentina and Turkey. In Argentina, you would say that this was due to the unreformed years of the previous government and some unfortunate external shocks. In Turkey, the crisis, unfortunately, was pretty much handmade uh, by the government itself. And uh, this, is, this is very unfortunate, but that has nothing to do with uh, big statements that emerging markets have uh, no future. We've seen very impressive growth in India, which continues, maybe slows down. We see slowing, but still solid growth in China. Uh, we see many emerging economies actually catching up with the West, including some of our countries of operations. And in that sense, I won't make uh, broad uh, statements like emerging economies are passe or the future. I would say if you want to catch up with advanced economies, you reform, you invest in uh, human capital, you improve governance, you integrate in the global economy, and this is where you can find success. And in many of our countries, we do see convergence. So countries which uh, were emerging from the uh, remnants of uh, command economy 30 years ago, some of them are now high-income countries integrated in Europe, uh, providing very high quality of life for their uh, citizens. It's interesting, you know, you talked there about the importance of integration into the global economy for emerging uh, markets, and people always thought, obviously, that was crucial, that they needed to be part of global value chains and global production chains. But they are doing that at a time when there is all this talk, of course, about whether we live in a post-globalization world. Uh, and, and I wonder how you see that as well, because whether you think we really are in this rather doomy gloomy um, post-globalization stage, whether, whether we're on the, on the sling back here? I think there is no way to turn globalization back. And uh, we see that even in the United States, where we have probably the most openly anti-trade leader in today's world, and, well, there are some um, uh, very poor and very unfree countries, which also are autarkic. But among, among advanced economies, of course, it is the United States, which is mostly... Um, uh, fighting globalization uh, through trade wars. So even in that country, we see major cost of this trade war, which uh, many unhappy U.S. firms and citizens already observe. We see that trade war doesn't achieve faster growth. We actually can um, uh, look at the numbers, and the numbers suggest that there is no uh, acceleration of growth in President Trump's years relative to the trend, if you like, relative to counterfactual. That is not as bad, I should say, relative to, say, United Kingdom, where the Brexit referendum has actually resulted in major deceleration of economic growth relative to what should have been expected. But anyway, I think there is no way to turn globalization back because globalization does deliver to advanced economies and to emerging markets. But indeed, globalization generates major challenges resulting in outsourcing of jobs, import 
competition with countries with uh, lower cost of labor, and this is a problem for many advanced economies. There are issues with immigration and refugee crisis. And then there is an, there is an issue for countries like our countries, which is emigration and brain drain. This is not what countries like U.S. talk about because they are direct beneficiaries of influx of skilled labor. But in many middle-income countries or upper-middle-income or even high-income countries, we have this issue that uh, the smartest people are now extremely mobile. And many of them would rather like to live and work in London or Silicon Valley. And this is a major challenge for countries like us. And this is where globalization actually benefits the United States and increases a cost, uh, imposes a cost on countries like ours. And these are the issues that need to be considered honestly. And this is where modern politicians, modern mainstream and reform politicians should invest, invest their, their efforts. efforts. So we, we keep hearing that, you know, the modern world, or at least, you know, the world is becoming less interlinked in the sense that, you know, nationalism is, is on the ride, rise. People have protectionist policies, these trade wars. At the same time, we are living in a time that they're, that we're very connected. Um, so how do these two things kind of work together? And, you know, it, it's kind of a funny question because we're so disconnected almost in such a connected world. Well, I think uh, there is as uh, there is no way to say that the world is less connected today than say ten years ago. Glo the march of globalization is very hard to stop. Uh, the growth of global trade has slowed down a bit. It's still growing as fast as uh, global GDP, and we do see a lot more connectivity today. Some of this connectivity is no longer reflected in GDP numbers simply because this connectivity is free. So when you do a Google search, when you use Google or Apple services or Samsung services for that matter, or Huawei, Huawei services uh, or Xiaomi services, you no longer actually pay money for this. Uh, and in that sense, in that sense, interconnectivity is growing. And uh, I think overall it's actually good for welfare, but it does create major tensions. It creates losers in advanced economies and, as I said, in our countries as well. And so this is, this is a big challenge, but stopping the technological progress is impossible. And technological progress, by definition, creates further globalization. When you invent new technology, you reduce barriers for cross-border movement of people, ideas, products, investments, capital, and that means globalization marches on. It's interesting, though, isn't it, Sergey? Because uh, one driver for reform in countries has often been actually globalization. It's the fact the pressure of international competition, the world that we were living in. If there's slightly less globalization, does that mean that politicians seize on that as an excuse not to uh, press with reform because they think some of the pressure is off them? Yes. If, uh, if you are able to convince your voters that... Uh, what you do is great. And for that, you may need uh, control over media, control over courts, control over political opposition, and so on. Then uh, you may actually be even genuinely popular, as long as you control the media, of course, uh, that uh, you, don't need, you don't need globalization and you don't need reforms. And we have seen in some of our countries, political leaders have successfully managed to do that. But as long as information is free, and with uh, the spread of internet, it is actually harder and harder to stop people getting access to information. So if people figure out that they could have done better 
it's very hard to convince them that they don't need reforms, they don't need growth. And without reforms and without integration with the global economy, it's uh, impossible to deliver growth. And all emerging markets understand that. You don't find any emerging market leader. Ex well, I, I don't think we count uh, North Korea among uh, emerging markets. But in other countries, all emerging market leaders actually say, we want to be part of the global economy. We want to benefit from globalization. And they actually do. It's impossible to think about Chinese economic growth without globalization. It's impossible to think about Indian economic growth without globalization. And most of our countries have converged to their advanced economies uh, counterparts exactly because they've become parts of global value chains. And that will continue. And as you rightly say, uh, only by creating cross-border uh, creating uh, barriers to cross-border trade, you can kind of lift uh, the pressure from uh, globalization, but it's impossible to do in countries like ours. You mentioned access to information. You know, what about companies like Facebook and Google? They're getting a lot of press right now because they haven't necessarily been very responsible in uh, how they at least allow or promote some of the information that's misinformation. So how does that play into kind of what you just said? This is an important concern. And uh, we've seen that uh, Facebook and Google are actually used and abused uh, by certain uh, anti-democratic politicians as disinformation channels. And um, in some cases, those politicians have done a better job. But overall, uh, and this is where EBRD will also play a role through our fu future investments in information telecommunication strategy, the very access to global ICT uh, infrastructure will eventually, I'm sure, will eventually uh, create more media freedom and more freedom of speech. But indeed, we need to figure out how to fight disinformation on those global information platforms. Overall, I think uh, in our countries, we see that leaders who don't like freedom of speech, they also try to fight access of their population to Facebook, Google, YouTube, and all kinds of information platform. YouTube is kind of part of Google, but I mentioned YouTube specifically because uh, now quite a few countries f try to fight YouTube in particular. But uh, I think the very fact that they try to fight those platforms in their own countries suggests that on balance, they don't like internet access. All right, let me remind you, you're listening to Pocket Dilemmas, our podcast here at the EBRD, where we discuss the political and economic questions which are facing the world today. You can download, uh, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify or anywhere else you get your podcast from. We'd love to hear from you, of course. This is Pocket Dilemmas, the podcast which explores the political and economic problems shaping our world. Review us on iTunes, email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com Follow us on Twitter at EBRD. Um, okay, so Sergey, so what do you see as the role of multilaterals? Do you think the UN, the World Bank mandate, and geography should change? Kind of what's the role of, of, of the, the G20? Is it still relevant going forward? What do you, what do you think? Well, I think a multilateral approach to governance is the future because the problems we've just discussed and many more problems that the world is facing are of global nature and we need... Uh, global governance mechanism, global cooperations to address those issues. Regarding how those problems should be addressed, I think I'm not very objective, but I have my revealed preference 
evidence. So what economists do, they say, don't believe what people say, watch what people do. And I did what I, I preached. I actually joined the BRD exactly because I believe a BRD business model. I think uh, uh, what EBRD does is exactly the approach. You talk about reforms, but you also bring investments to support those reforms. And also you focus on the reforms which unlock opportunities for investments that drives drive impact. So this interaction between business operations, between investment operations and reforms is exactly the way forward. And then another issue here is, of course, international cooperation. We have very strong relationship with other institutions. We have very strong relationship with our shareholders, where we actually coordinate the vision for reforms in a specific region, in a specific country. And I think this is the way forward. And then on top of that, we need global cooperation for global issues like, for example, climate change, where different institutions say, well, climate change is a real emergency, and we need to think what we do globally, and then we decompose this problem, we bring it down to the level of different regions, different countries, where we say, in this country, fighting climate change is about renewable energy, in that country is about, well, quite honestly, just removing energy subsidies and so on and so forth. And in that, in that particular city, it's about waste management or wastewater management. And so when we talk about those issues in very pragmatic terms, there, that's where we make an impact. And this is wh what I like about the BRD. It's not like some other fora where you just talk. It's also where you invest and really make an impact on the ground. That's an interesting thought, though, isn't it, Sergey? Because here we are at a time, if I could put my doomster and gloomster voice on, here we are at a self-declared doomster and gloomster, by the way. Uh, here we are at a time when clearly there is more need than ever for multilateralism. It's very clear. Those sort of issues that you've outlined will only be sorted out through multilateral action. But we live in a time of nationalism. Uh, and that is the enemy of multilateralism in the in the eyes of some politicians. So how do you get buy-in for multilateralism under those circumstances? That's an excellent question. And I think uh, we need to go back to the question why pro-global national leaders lost trust of their voters, something that we've already discussed. And I think this is the first issue. You need to regain the trust of the voters. You need to show that you care about them and you represent them. And then your next step is actually to tell them, look, it is in your interest to talk to other countries and solve global issues, solve global problems. And uh, if you create a, an impression that you care more about other countries and about the world and not about your national voters, you will not get, get, go anywhere. Why? Because still the main, the main functioning entity in the global politics today is still nation state. And we have to be realistic about that. And if you lose trust of national voters at the national level, you will not be able to solve global problems as well. And so the first step is actually to regain the trust of the voters at the national level and then to communicate to the voters, look, we do have the climate change crisis. We do have a refugee crisis. These crises actually may reinforce each other because in some poor countries, emigration and refugees are created because of climate challenge. We have a governance challenge in many of our countries. We have fragile states. And so we need to think about global issues because we want to promote national welfare. But in order to make this argument, you need to make sure that the voters at the national level trust you. They know that you 
think about their own interests. And I strongly believe that is feasible. And we've actually seen the return of such politicians just this year in our countries, in the last couple of years in some Western countries, despite all the gloom and doom that you, Jonathan, correctly mentioned. <laughs> So, you know, today we're looking at a world now that is really indebted. So we are more indebted now than we actually have ever been. I mean, we're kind of on par with wartime. So the world's debtedness rose by or indebtedness rose by three trillion in the first quarter of 2019. So it's almost unprecedented barring binge um, throughout the, the, the global debt sphere um, to about $246.5 trillion, according to recent data from the Institute of International Finance. High levels of debt can't be good for the governments willing to reform. So does the global indebtedness worry you? Is it something that will be easy to solve in the future? Or are we just borrowing against you know, nothing? So this is a great question. Well, first and foremost, I should say that when you say that we have this huge debt, something like three times global GDP, you start worrying, well, it's very hard to live with such big debt. So imagine yourself, your family having a debt of three times your annual income. You would be worried, and I would be worried. But the good news is, as a humankind, we are not owing this money to Martians. We are owing it to ourselves. So first and foremost, I should say, it's not a disaster. For every dollar owed by a human, there is another human on the receiving end, right? And so we shouldn't worry too much about that. The other point I would like to make is, unfortunately, this is the time of very low interest rates. As of today, about a quarter of uh, sovereign debt today in the world is uh, borrowed at negative interest rates. Why? Because we have a, almost a savings glut. We have many people who save, and unfortunately for over-middle-aged people like myself, uh, the savings no longer pay substantial interest rates. And, but this is a reality. The world is aging, especially the rich world is aging, and so these savings are harder to park. And this is why we actually need reforms. We need to unlock investment opportunities to create higher interest rates so savings start to pay off again. And now, if you compare a situation where interest rates are high and interest rates are low, when interest rates are high, it's much harder to borrow, especially for the governments. When interest rates are low, it's actually good business to borrow. For example, in today's United States, interest rates are below GDP growth rate. So if you don't do anything, debt will actually go down simply because GDP will grow faster than interest rates on today's debt. Now, I should say that uh, today's President Trump is a strong believer in running uh, budget deficit. Uh, so the debt may still go up. But overall, when interest rates are low, it's very hard to argue that maybe you want to borrow and, for example, use this money to solve the climate change issues, to build infrastructure, to invest in human capital, so you can actually address those global challenges that we've just discussed. But once interest rates go up, suddenly governments and all kinds of borrowers will feel disciplined. So in that sense, I'm not extremely worried about this issue. Other issues like climate change, refugee crisis, the rise of inequality due to globalization and technological progress, brain drain in countries like ours, these are the issues I'm worried more about. 
Let me remind you, uh, by the way, that you're listening to Pocket Dilemmas and the dilemma that we're talking around today, including the very complex economics that really go uh, around it, are should governments go through painful but necessary changes or preserve their political popularity? Sergey, that brings me to another issue, which is really around the question of uh, whether the traditional leaders, political leaders, traditional political parties are really uh, in tune with the electorate. Or are electorates moving away, as we've seen, from traditional left, traditional right, traditional centrist parties? Uh, does that mean, for example, it would be better to have a new party, a governance party, an inequality party, those sort of things that might help reform? Jonathan, I think it's a very important question, and uh, I should say we don't know. I think we do see party systems collapsing or transforming in many countries, in our country's operations, in G7 countries, we see new types of leaders emerging. And in that sense, we may be in the midst of a major transformation of political institutions. And indeed, uh, if uh, I were a politician, if I were to advise a politician, for example, in a corrupt country, I would advise this politician to create a governance party. And we've seen that in Ukraine. More or less, the party which now has a majority in Ukrainian parliament is formed around one politician who built his career about one issue, that is to fight corruption, to fight oligarchs, to promote better governance. And in that sense, this party, the servant of the people, is by definition the governance party. Whether this party will or will not deliver on this promise is a different question. Do you think we'll see other countries, uh, this, this sort of a phenomenon emerging? Of course, yes. I think, I think we see many protesters in, in different countries who are trying to fight back against corruption. In some countries, this is successful. In some countries, not really. But I think uh, in many countries, we see people who actually try to fight back and request the change. And now, in some countries, that brings in poli uh, populist politicians who say, the system is corrupt, I represent the change. And uh, I think this brings us to the definition of populism. And in economics, we usually think about populists as somebody who promises something which is not realistic, uh, making uh, unsustainable promises. In uh, political science, actually, the definition of populism is this um, view of the society as a division between pure people and corrupt elite. And, uh, in this, and then the other part of this worldview is actually the pure people is homogeneous and therefore we don't need uh, checks and balances. So it's a, it's a very complex debate, but sometimes you have this populist pushback, which brings to, uh, to government people who fight corruption and there is now th nothing wrong in that if these people actually deliver. So, but uh, overall, I think there is a scope in many of our countries for a governance party. There is a scope in many of our countries for inclusion parties. But that doesn't mean per se that traditional system has to be dismantled. In some of our countries, this is a center-left party which fights corruption. Some of our countries actually center-right party that fights corruption. And in some of our countries, in some G7 countries as well, you have a centrist populist party that takes over. So in some classifications, for example, President Macron's party is classified as a populist party, but of course not as extreme right or extreme left, but as a centrist populist party. And that is something that may happen in our countries as well. So, Sergey, this is going to be a hard question for you because I'm going to have to narrow it down to three. But what are your three key takeaways from your time here um, in the office at EBRD? Well, I think um, the first uh, takeaway is that the business model of EBRD and mandate of EBRD is safe and sound. 
is in a good shape. It has to be revisited from time to time, and I'm very excited that it was during my time that we had this major uh, updating of what we call transition concept, the definition of the destination point of what we do. And I'm very happy that I saw how academic knowledge can actually contribute to that process. Uh, part of the second takeaway, which is completely related to this one, is when we updated the transition concept, I saw that we really need to think about issues like governance and human capital. And I'm very happy to see that some of those uh, uh, takeaways, some of that uh, intellectual journey resulted in thinking about our next five-year plan. If you look in uh, our strategic capital framework, in uh, Soviet Union we just call it five-year plan, um, uh, we see that we see skills being there, we see t uh, technology being there, uh, governance is actually an overriding theme, and uh, this is something that, that I would like EBRD to do more of that. And uh, finally, and once again, I would say that we shouldn't really uh, be gloom and doom, we should be more optimistic. And uh, among two of the co-hosts, I would <laughs> like to side with you, Katie. I think for every country and year where we see reasons for uh, uh, pessimism, we also see uh, the shoots of green, if you like. And even talking about green, this is where we see an emergency. We now have a green wave throughout Europe, both in the West, but also in the East. And we also see emergence of uh, support for green reforms and for investment in uh, uh, resisting climate change, investment in uh, mitigation adaptation in countries where we didn't see that before. And in that sense, I see a lot of uh, reason for optimism throughout our region, but also beyond. In that sense, I think uh, the good news about the BRD is you can take the success story from one country, bring it to another country and say, look, we, together with that society, manage to succeed, and we can do it here as well. And that works really well. Countries say, we want to learn more about that success story, and we also want to learn from mistakes. But usually people want to learn from successes than from mistakes. And luckily, we do have success stories. I couldn't agree more. I think those are excellent you know, key, key takeaways. So now, I guess, um, because of the eternal optimist in me, um, I guess let's end with a little bit more of a, um, of a fun question for you. So what's the funniest thing that's happened to you while you've been here at the EBRD? Well, uh, the fun part was being with you on this podcast in all iterations of that podcast. Uh, a lot of uh, interesting stuff happened to me during the travel. I traveled a lot, and uh, I should say that EBRD is a, very well-organized institution. So mostly it was very seamless, uh, completely perfect. But occasionally I would come at, in a hotel, of all places, say Washington, D.C., and they would tell you, sorry, we canceled your reservation, and we send a fax to, to your office, and our office no longer operates on faxes, right? Uh, as well as most of our countries, I should say. And so I'm sorry, but you don't have a room <laughs> in the city anymore. <laughs> Next time they should try carrier pigeon. Exactly, <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. So things like that happen. On a more serious note, I was actually perplexed to see some travel back in time to almost like 1930s. You know, many of our countries still don't recognize each other. Some of our shareholders don't recognize borders of other countries, and sometimes that results in very difficult conversations and even episodes which happened to me, which uh, brings uh, 
me a bit back to where Jonathan is about doom and gloom. Once we wanted to present transition report, which is the main part of my job in the country, which didn't like the fact that uh, uh, we mentioned another entity which that country doesn't recognize as a country. And so they simply burned the transition <laughs> report, physically burned two boxes of transition report that we wanted to hand it out. <coughs> and so this is not too funny, I would say, but this is something that uh, was reminding me that there is much more work to do in certain dimensions, including in our shareholder countries and in some of our countries' operations. But overall, that's been a very exciting period of three years. I learned a lot, and I've been uh, very satisfied that I've participated in this journey of the bank to update the transition concept, to add new countries' operations, which of course is, again, in economists' uh, lingo, is a revealed preference of support for our business model. When countries come to us and say, we would like you to help us to become a sustainable market economy. And so that always uh, brought uh, satisfaction, intellectual satisfaction to all of us, where we understood that it's not just talk, but actual support, actual uh, tangible sign of uh, confidence that we get in our business model and in our skill set, in our staff, which is, of course, our main asset in this bank. Sergey Guriev, thank you very much indeed uh, for being with us uh, here on the podcast and, by the way, here at the bank as well. So the big question we were thinking about, to reform or not to reform, is a, it's a hard question. I think my takeaway from listening to Sergey is that, look, reform will definitely continue. I mean, there's no alternative. You either reform or die, I think, for, for most economists. But politicians are going to have to get a lot smarter about it. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Uh, it is a much more complex environment for them to reform in. And if they don't understand that, if they don't find ways of doing it, they're just going to seek ways out of reform or watered down reforms. You know, and for me, I think what really came came through from what Sergey said is trust. So, you know, we hear a lot about people not trusting their government, people not trusting, you know, each other, et cetera. But it does come down to trust. And I think we need to be more people centered. Um, so building trust amongst, you know, humans so me and you Jonathan us and whoever we elect the, the the politicians within themselves and then also you know countries I think trust should be something that we really focus on so I like that Sergey really focused on that I also love that he said as long as we are borrowing from other humans and not Martians that we're going to be okay so I, I think those are two I'm sure some bankers are examining the Martian borrowing market <laughs> even now as a potential future business uh, that sounds like a very optimistic note to when end borrow, on so. when you borrow 200 trillion dollars. <laughs> it's no longer your problem. It's most <laughs> Martians' problem. <laughs> An out-of-this-world problem. That's what I like. Um, thank you very much. That's a very optimistic note to end on. You've been listening to Pocket Dilemmas, the podcast which explores the political and economic problems which are shaping our world. Review us on iTunes. Email us, of course, at uh, dilemmas at ebrd.com. We'd love to hear from you. And you can follow us on Twitter at ebrd. Goodbye. This podcast was brought to you by the EBRD. We'll be back soon with a new episode. In the meantime, send us your feedback, suggestions and ideas on dilemmas at ebrd.com. And remember, reviewing and rating us helps others to find us. Until next time.